0: I'd like to extend my greetings from the, my co-elder, Pastor Mike Waters, and also the church that meets at in North Canton Heritage Reformed Baptist Church. And uh, it's been my privilege to—I'm uh, a bi-vocational elder, so I'm. Pastor Mike is our main uh, full-time pastor, and I uh, assist him, but I do have responsibilities within the congregation. So it's my privilege to stand before you this morning to uh, support this congregation uh, just as you've gone through uh, a little more of a season of difficulty. And so I chose as my title um, Facing Trials and Difficulties by the Grace of God Found in Jesus Christ, Our Hope. So really it's a message on perseverance. And so as uh, is persevering as is the people of God. And so let us ask for God's help as we approach his word. And first I want to read the nine verses in 1 Peter 1, and then we'll pray. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us ask for God's help this morning. Our Father, we do ask for your assistance. We are grateful that in your word we find great and precious promises by which we can persevere and be strengthened, be assured of your love, of your provision, of your power, of your might, of your sufficiency for all of our weaknesses. So Father, we ask that you by your Spirit would now come and dwell amongst us, Strengthen us according to your word, by the mercies that are found in you. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we ask these things, O Lord. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, three sections. Who is Peter? And Then we're going to look at Peter and Paul's interactions at Antioch. And then that's going to lead us back to our text where we'll do an exposition of 1 Peter verse 1 and 2. And so, Peter's been a man that I've fallen in love with over the past two to three years. I preached through 2 Peter chapter 1. Then I jumped over to 1 Peter and been working through chapter 1 and 2. And we're now up to servants be submissive to your master's. Which isn't our con- common place. It's not as more controversial, because we don't have masters and slaves anymore, but anyways, contextually, it speaks of how we need to be submissive to our employers and to those in authority over us. So anyways, when uh, I was asked or talking with Caleb about coming this morning, I naturally went to Peter. And in my opinion, Peter is probably one of the most influential men of the New Testament. He stands alongside of two other men in a group of men who are the premier apostles found in our New Testament writings. That would be John, the Apostle John, Paul, and then there's Peter. And one of the reasons I say this is that these three men... Provide for us an accurate understanding of the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. For example, the subtext, so to speak, or the behind the Gospel of John is this whole motif of the temple. And the motif is that the Word has tabernacled amongst us. And so the motif is that Jesus, just as Jesus said in the, as he went into the temple, destroy this uh, temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they thought he was talking about a physical building. He was, of course, referring to his spiritual body. That through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the living temple was going to be raised up. And of course, that living temple appears again in the book of Revelation, where there is no temple because Christ, the light of the world and the light of heaven, is the temple in the light of heaven. Paul, of course, is the ark builder, our master builder. And so many of the letters in our New Testament. Our letters to churches that were experiencing either difficulties or, as in the book of Ephesians, Paul is expressing the magnificence of what the new temple is, Christ Jesus, the chief cornerstone, but that the people of God compose this new man, both Jew and Gentile, who are brought together to inhabit that new temple. Peter, of course, is kind of the man in the middle. He's the, he's, he's in the, not only is he one of the 12 on all your, in, uh, in your gospel records, he's always the first listed in the 12 apostles. He's the one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. He's at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's at the betrayal of Christ in the garden. He's with the sword, quick and ready to act to defend his Lord, but he's also denying his Lord in in the courtyard before the three girls. And so we see that in Peter's life, Peter experienced many highs and many lows. Of course, there's no lower low than when he denied his Lord in that courtyard. And so I want to take us to Peter's restoration, which is found in John's Gospel, chapter 21, and verse 15. Having denied his Lord three times in the courtyard, the Lord said to Peter in verse 15, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, Do you love me? So Peter said to him, Lord, yes, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. Now Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you are younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wish. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and in other words, gird you and carry you to where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this to to him, he said to him, Follow me. We see here that God is a restoring God. God is not only a faithful God, but he is a God that preserves his people. See, the repentance, like we were talking about in the Sunday school hour, the difference between saving faith and dead faith, the gospel record says that Judas repented after he betrayed Christ. But it was a worldly sorrow. And it led him to taking his own life. When it said that Peter went and wept bitterly, it was a repentance that led to life. It led him back to his Savior. He he knew he had blown it. That he had denied his Lord. That for all his bravio, Lord, they all might deny you, but I won't. He denied his Savior. But God came, the Lord came and mercifully restored him and reminded him what it was that he had set him aside to do. To tend to the lambs, to feed the sheep. to, To tend to the sheep. He was called to shepherd the people of God. And so that's the first scenario we see peter in of course from there we see in the first 12 chapters of the book of acts he's giving the first sermon he's given the second sermon he's giving the third sermon that's recorded in our in the book of acts and of course it only gains him notoriety by being thrown in jail more than once and by the 12th chapter we see that he's in jail the angel the lord comes and delivers him and he's quote set free So his ministry continues until we come to the point like where we want to pick up the story today when he's in Antioch. And before I do that, I just want to make mention, I also attribute to Peter the fact that historically they believe the Gospel of Mark is really a a rendition of Peter's preaching primarily to Rome in the first century. And so John Mark was the associate associated with Paul and Barnabas and others in the New Testament, but eventually he also linked up with Peter. And so after Peter's ministry in Rome, John Mark was asked to give a rendition of all the pre- teaching that Peter had given to the people. So that's how we get our first gospel. Of course, it's one of three that are called the synoptics because they all see God in the same linear fashion. begins with his birth, goes to his death, burial, resurrection, etc. Whereas John goes time before time, where he goes back to in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we see a contrast within our Gospels. But my point this morning to say, Peter, as a preeminent apostle was not flawless. He was not without problems in the sense that the transition between Old Covenant understanding and New Covenant belief was a, tr- tr- a troubling transition for the early church. And that controversy probably is picked up most clearly displayed in the book of Galatians, And so we want to look at um, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, where this controversy is expressed by Paul. And so Paul is recounting what happened in Antioch as he's writing to the Galatians, because the Galatians are being troubled by the Judaizers within their Within their midst. The church was being troubled because the Judaizers were telling them they have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. Where Paul's saying, as we heard in our Sunday school hours, by faith alone, the empty hand of faith reaches out and takes on, takes Christ. But that empty hand, as it takes Christ, doesn't then stand alone, but then it acts out in love. And so, as we learned in our Sunday school hour, faith is active in that it has all its accompanying fruits and graces that come alongside it. The fruit of the Spirit produces within us the mercy and the love and the hope and the care given towards and extended towards others that is necessary to show that we truly have been changed people. Now, as I said, this transition between Old and New Covenants is somewhat was somewhat controversial at that time, And even Peter himself got tripped up on this issue where it says in verse 11, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him. This is Paul writing. The I is Paul. Now when Peter came into Antioch, I, Paul, withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed, for certain men had come from James. Of course, he's referring to James in Jerusalem, who was one of the leaders in the church. Certain men had come from James, and he would not eat with the Gentiles, but when, he, when they came, he, Peter, withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the, circumcision, of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. What he's saying here is this. We were one big happy family. Jews, Gentiles, fellowshiped together around the Lord's with the, as the Lord's people, as the new man in Christ. And then certain men came and all of a sudden, everybody started getting nervous, so to speak, and then some of them start saying, well, you know, we're according to dietary laws, we're not supposed to be eating this pork or this, this, or that. And so then the separation started happening and you ended up with two divisions within the church or two camps, the Jews and the Gentiles. And Peter got swept into it to the point that even Barnabas got swept up into it. And so here, in verse 14, we see how this confrontation continues when Paul says to Peter, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in a manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who were Jews by nature, Paul was a, a Jewish man, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And so here we see the controversy full-blown. And we also see the gospel being applied by the Apostle Paul to the Apostle Peter. I mean, this is some way, it's kind of like the titan's like for those older guys, it's Frazier and Ali in Madison Square Garden going 15 rounds. For you younger people, it would be somebody else. I don't know. Now they got UFC fighting or whatever, where they go back to gladiating, fighting to the almost death, where they brutalize each other. But the point here is that they're facing off, and this was a big, big issue. Because for Paul, it's the gospel itself that was being not only threatened, but undermined. You see, I think we have to understand how the law is seen by Paul. Because it's in the book of Romans itself, law is used a number of times. 30, 40, 50 times. And sometimes it's talking about the law of God as being the moral law that's imprinted upon man's heart at creation. And then that moral law is then summarized in the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai where God himself by his own finger inscribed them on tablets of stone. But the law of the Old Covenant also had the ceremonial aspects that dealt with not only how the sacrifices are prepared, but also dietary rules and regulations, and also then the civil aspects because it was a theocracy and there was civil law. And so the Bible, when it speaks in the Old Covenant of law, it's talking about these three areas of law. And of course, when The New Testament says in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, he was going to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the whole Old Covenant law. But especially he was going to fulfill the moral aspect of that he was going to be the obedient son to his father in doing all that was upright and righteous. And so in Christ we see the whole of the law was fulfilled on our behalf. And so Paul is saying here, don't go back to try to justify yourself before God by your actions. You need to place your confidence in the merits of another. The obedient Son of God who has fulfilled all righteousness for us. What the ceremonial law did was to draw a line between people. And it separated people into one of two categories. They were either Jewish, and therefore the people of God, or they were not. And the Gospel comes to all men. To redeem all mankind in the sense that the Gospel is to liberate a fallen human race. And so it was a big issue that Paul... Went after Peter on this point that we cannot allow the gospel to become a works righteousness activity. And so we see this, we see this probably uh, the doxology of the gospel most clearly. Illustrate it probably in Ephesians chapter. Well, it was in Ephesians chapter two, verses eleven through twenty-two. I'm going to read that for us. Now, just I'll just be upfront with y'all. My mind is not linear. I think in circles, okay. And so you're all probably wondering, how come he's not in First Peter yet? I thought we were talking about First Peter this morning. Well. That's just how I think, and I'm I, I, I don't really want, I'm not really apologizing for it as much as just explaining why it seems that we've been on a circular course to get to this point. But I think it's the background and it's the understanding we want to have, because when we come to Peter, we're coming to a man who has experienced a whole lifetime of experiences. First and Second Peter is really the writings of a dying man. It's the most important thing that he has to communicate. But it's behind all that is that whole lifetime of experience that he has walked through. And so I'm going to read in Ephesians 2. What Paul saw was at stake, and why he confronted Peter in such a strong way. When we jump into verse 11, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised, are the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and with God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace and that he might thereby Reconciled them both to God in one body through the cross, whereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far, far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access access to one spirit, to the Father. This was what was at stake for Paul in Antioch. The whole understanding of the Gospel was at stake. And he was fighting, quote-unquote, with Peter to establish in Peter a right understanding of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter was an eyewitness that's why he's an apostle. He was an eyewitness. He saw all the events from the baptism to the crucifixion. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw it all, brethren. And he gives a faithful witness of it all. But he also received the admonition and the correction of the Apostle Paul. Because in 2 Peter chapter 2, we read these words. 2 Peter 3, 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. He's speaking of heaven, for God judging the world, removing all unrighteousness. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the law suffering, the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as our beloved brother Paul. According to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking of them things, in them of things, these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do with the rest of the scriptures. See, we have to understand that Peter even acknowledged here that the Bible is, quote, complicated in some ways. And yet, the Bible is clear in other ways. But where there is pride and ambition, James tells us there's all kinds of problems. But when there's humility, where we bow our hearts before the Lord and before His Word and before what He's truly revealed to us as ours... There's peace and joy. And so, I come now to Peter's letter. Where he writes, Peter, in 1 Peter 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, we we'll just look at these couple words here. So we know who the author is, Peter. We've talked about how Simon, the son of Andrew, the brother of Andrew, was brought to Christ. We didn't really talk about that, but that he was the, one of the first disciples. As soon as Jesus saw him, he says, your name shall be Peter. And so Peter was renamed by Christ. And so his surname is Simon Peter within our scriptures. But here he just draws attention to that. He's been made new in Christ. Where in 2 Peter, he uses Simon, his surname. But he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was an eyewitness. He was one of the twelve. He was in the inner circle. He saw it all. He, he, he's there as an eyewitness. But he's writing to the pilgrims. In other words, these are the, those that are in Asia Minor, and yet they don't feel they really belong in Asia Minor. Maybe they had come from Rome because of the persecution that happened there. Maybe they came from Jerusalem when the destruction by the Babylonians had happened centuries before. And so they were dispersed throughout that Asian Minor region. But the fact is that they were also drawn to this term, pilgrims. To me it reminds me of Father Abraham who was always looking for a better country. He lived and dwelt in tents, and yet he's the father of the faith. Because he didn't put his hope in his, what he could see in this present world. He put his hope and his trust in the promises of God, that there was a better country, there was a better Savior. We saw in the Sunday school class that if you look in the Hall of Fame in the book of Hebrews, what was it that distinguished that faith, that saving faith that Abraham had? He believed that the one who God promised, that the promise was going to be fulfilled through his son Isaac, that though he would be struck dead, he, God was able to raise him from the dead. Isaac, in that situation, prefigures Jesus Christ, God's only son, bearing the sins of the world. He's the sacrificial lamb. The ram caught in the thicket was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will provide salvation for his people. And so, Having spoken of his audience, we, we understand that this book of 1 Peter is part of our canon, or part of the Holy Scriptures. And therefore, the older writers refer to it as being a general epistle. Not because it's just about generalities, but because it's given for all the people of God for all time. It's to be applied to each one of our lives and that it gives us something that is not like addressed to a specific location like Philippians or Ephesians or Galatians or First Corinthians. But it's, it's the, the message is so broad that it catches us all. Each and every one of us. And what is it that he starts out with? It's the, it's the, it's the activities of the triune God. That we are, in verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I want to look at these three different aspects of God's actions as the triune God. God is one in essence, but three in essence subsistences or persons. And so the Father acts, the Spirit is active, and Jesus is active in the salvation of his people. Here we see the Father is foreknowing, he is planning, he is electing, he is setting aside a people in that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What does this mean other than God foreloved us? Before time began, before the foundations of the world, God foreknew a people, the elect of God, would be called out of darkness into the marvelous light. And that foreloving and that foreknowledge predestines us according to love. And if we, I'm not going to take the time, but if you look in Ephesians chapter 1, in the cascade of blessings that Paul the Apostle speaks of for the people of God, he speaks of that love predestining us for obedience as children unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of His love, God's the Father's love for us, He has compassion upon us to redeem us out of our lost estate. But secondly, we look also here that we're to be in sanctification of the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit because one of the things He is called to do is to beautify the people of God. To call them into the holiness that is required of the children of God. There's to be family characteristics that are true of all true believers. They're to hate their sin. They're to love their Savior. They're to love the people. They're to love the the Word of God. They're to, to, to be active in expressing obedience to their Father. And it's the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of the people of God, lives and resides within us. He's the down payment. And He is with us. And He is there to beautify us to sanctify us, to take us from one state of glory to another. And so we see that, you see that the, the concept of Trinity is not some constrict that a confession designed. No, our confessions are designed to reflect what the Holy Scriptures are teaching us. And we see here right from the get-go, Peter, the Apostle, says, the Father is electing us according to his foreknowledge. The Spirit is sanctifying us because he's the Spirit of holiness. And they are both bringing us to Christ that we might obey him and be sprinkled with his blood. And so we see that our our confessions are just merely a reflection of what the Scriptures teach. And so here we see that this triune God is being described by the Apostle Paul. Paul, Peter. But thirdly, we see that here we're called for obedience as the children of God. This obedience is found in the fact that we Like, unfortunately, there's historically, at least in my lifetime, you can remember back in the 70s. I know that's almost 50 years ago now, but anyways, in 1970, I better clarify which generation or decade I'm talking about. In 1970s, there's these little bumper stickers that came out there called I Got It. I think is what it was called. I Got It. And they were distributed, by I think, by Campus Crusade for Christ or something, maybe Jerry Falwell or some evangelistic, organization. And, and, and so, but when the gospel is focused on the, the, the me instead of the he, we begin to think that we save ourselves. I got it. I got it. I finally figured it out. I'm so smart. And there's some, a little bit of that self-congratulatory type aspect of that, a man-centered approach gospel. But at the same time, on the other extreme is there's those that say they got it, but they didn't get nothing, and they just continue to live just like they used to live, right? But then they, they, they know enough of the Bible to say, well, you know, there's nothing I can do to add to my justification, so there's probably nothing I can do to subtract from it either. And so they just live like the devil. And that's wrong too. So you don't, you don't want either extreme. We want to find that happy marriage where we truly get it, but in the getting of it, we're truly disciples of Christ. See, Jesus said, unless you take up, my, take up my cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So there's an element of self-denial that's embedded in the Gospel. I think Paul the Apostle puts it in Romans where he says that you're to present yourselves as living sacrifices unto God. Now talk about oxymorons of oxymorons. If you put a living sacrifice on any type of sacrificial altar, what's it going to get other than it's going to get up on its four feet and run away? But yet God is saying to us, to be obedient children means we willingly take upon ourselves the yoke of Christ. God promises to, in Jeremiah thirty and thirty-one to ascribe the law upon our hearts. No longer is going to be a not it's not going to be a broken law on broken tablets of stone. You know Moses didn't even get on off the mountain before the Ten Commandments were so destroyed by the wickedness of the people that he threw them down in disgust, and then they had to re, he had to go back up and get them again. So the law is given to show us that man is condemned by nature because he's a lawbreaker from the garden. In Adam all have fallen. But in Christ, we have a Redeemer. And in Christ, we are called to obedience, to be a follower of Christ. But he doesn't leave us there. But he says also that we are called for the sprinkling of the blood Of Jesus Christ. Now that of course brings to our mind that sacrificial system that was from the garden forward. But it's also to remind us that in the best of our actions, as Luther might want to have put it, in the best of our actions, there's mixture. In other words, To Martin Luther, the greatest commandment was to love God. And he would used to say to the people, if you think you can accomplish that, you're seriously deranged to think that you can love God enough to be able to warrant God's blessing on your life. Because he knew that man was a mixture. That within our best actions, we need the blood of Christ. Because only Christ has merited Perfect obedience and has exemplified perfect love towards his father. And so, not that we're called to sloppy living and then we just like like our cereal, throw the raisins on top and let's call it raisin bran. No, we're we need to recognize that even our best efforts need the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. But the fact is, blood—the blood of Jesus Christ—has been shed. For the remission of our sins. And so that is why Peter goes on and says this. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. In other words, God doesn't have just a little bit of blessing for his people. He's not just adding a little bit of extra to our lives. He's given us life itself. And that grace and that peace that is found in Christ is an abundant grace, an abundant peace that satisfies and calms our hearts. And therefore, we place our trust in one greater than ourselves. And so, one of our takeaways this morning that I want us to remember, this is a real easy phrase that I try to remind myself with, is that in the Old Covenant, the motif was do and live. In other words, when death came into the garden is when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so if they would have obeyed the command of God, they would have been been lived. And so the reflection in all the commandments from the garden forward, if you do all these things, you're you're to live in them. The blessing is found in the doing of them. But in the new covenant, the motif is live in Christ and do. In other words, we who were rebels, we who were wretches, we who were alienated from God by our trespasses and sins, we have peace through Christ. We've been brought near to the Father by the Father's love. We've been accepted in the beloved. And now we live out of the overflow of the grace and the peace and the mercy. That's all, that's all those introductory salutations in every letter. The grace, the mercy, is because of the empty hand that reaches out to be filled by God, that receives from God the grace and the peace that he needs. And so, brethren, I would ask of you this morning to set your eyes Upon one greater than ourselves. To set your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Peter goes on to set before us all the glories that are found in Christ. Because he's the one who's defeated death for us, he's the one that fulfilled all the requirements of righteousness for us. Therefore, he's the one that we should give all homage and all honor and all glory too. So let us pray. Our Father, we bow our hearts afresh to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask that by your Spirit you would strengthen our hearts. Help us not to put confidence within ourselves, but we do pray that you would give us holy resolve to trust not in our own understanding, not in our own strength, not in our own doing but we acknowledge that our doing isn't sufficient and so we ask that the blood of Christ might be sprinkled upon our hearts that you would give us that love for God and that peace with God and that we would renew our steadfastness of following after Christ we pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory and ask that your blessing would rest upon your people